Well, we're continuing our study in the book of Mark. This is our fifth week. And last week, we demonstrated that Jesus not only had the ability to heal, but he had the authority to forgive sin. And now he's beginning to do it publicly so we can start a conversation with those who are in authority, religious leaders. And he made it a point to say that forgiveness of sins was his mission, and the healings and miracles are a means to an end. Miracles and healings are not the end. They're a means to an end. Miracles and healings draw people in. They get the crowd's attention to hear the gospel. Jesus' mission was not necessarily to heal everybody, but he used healing to get them saved. The goal was to bring salvation to the world, and the healings and miracles were used to bring about that end. And he chastised the religious leaders for not really knowing and understanding God's word. Now, we talked about a little bit about that. Last week, the Bible says, you err because you don't know the scripture. We want to be a church that knows the scripture. We want to be a church that knows what God's word says. So now we're going to pick it up at verse 18 in chapter 2 of Mark. It says, John's disciples and the Pharisees sometimes fasted. One day, some people came to Jesus and asked, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't? Well, it, now it seems like these are two disjointed accounts. You know, first we had the account last week, now we have the fasting issue. But these are actually two viewpoints on the same issue, same topic. Last week, we saw the Pharisees questioning who Jesus was eating with. Hey, you're eating with tax collectors and sinners. How come you're hanging out with that crowd? Now, his conduct is what they were looking at. His conduct here seems inappropriate to the religious leaders because in the Old Testament, there was only one fast that was required by the law, and that was the Day of Atonement. That was the only fast that God put down in the law. After the exile into Babylon, the Jewish people added four more fasts to that list, but they weren't required by God. And now, in the New Testament era, the Pharisees added even more to that, and their fasting was two times a week on Mondays and Thursdays. Now, John the Baptist, he was a loner, and his disciples may have been fasting because he was in jail. They were wanting God to do something, deliver him from jail, so maybe they were fasting for that. Now, the Pharisees, they were, they were teachers. They didn't have disciples themselves. Um, these were people who were just basically following the Pharisees, wanting to be like them, not officially, but they wanted to be like them, and they fasted because the Pharisees fasted. You ever do that? You ever do something because somebody else does it? Their motive wasn't to become like Christ. Their motive was because, well, these other guys are doing it, so I guess I better fast too. And all the other people were wondering, well, this is an act of piety. How come Jesus wasn't fasting? For the Pharisees, fasting was the biggest act of piety they could do. This is, this is next to being with God, fasting was, was it. And they were wondering, well, Jesus, you're, you're from God. How come you're not being as pious and as religious as the people in authority? Well, because the Pharisees had made God unattainable. And the one who delights in and, and they became delightful in making burdens that people couldn't carry. Matthew 23, 4 says, they, this is Jesus talking, says, they, the Pharisees, crush you with impossible religious demands and never lift a finger to help ease the burden. How many know we have freedom in Christ? Freedom in Christ. There's not a whole bunch of rules we have to follow in order to be right with God. We are right because of faith. You're saved by faith, alone. 
And the things that we do, the way we live our life is not in order to be saved. It's a result of what God is already doing in us. So we want to be like Christ. We live like Christ lived. Not because it gets us brownie points. It's because we want to show God how appreciative we are of what he's already given us. So we don't make crushing rules. You don't have to do a lot of things to be a Christian other than believe in Jesus. Repent of your sins, believe in Jesus. You know what's happening in Asbury? And Phil was telling me, and I read an article. What started the, the revival in Asbury was somebody came up and confessed and repented of sin. That started it. We want to confess and repent of sin. We want our lives to be clean before God. And the minute you acknowledge your sin before God and ask for forgiveness, the Bible says you're, you're saved. Mark goes on in verse 19 and says, Jesus replied, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while they're with the groom. Jesus is saying here, basically, life is not supposed to be a funeral. God wants life to be a wedding feast. How many go to weddings? Haven't been to one in a while. Had a bunch of them a while ago. Haven't been to one. Weddings are supposed to be fun, right? Weddings are supposed to be a joyous time of celebration. Jesus is saying, look, I'm the bridegroom, and these people are my guests. Are not wedding guests who you think are outcasts? They're not part of our religious group. Aren't they supposed to have a good time? Sometimes we think that serving God is a chore or a burden. When in reality, God wants us to enjoy our relationship with Jesus as one would enjoy their time at a wedding. Now, how many know there's no coincidences in God's kingdom? A coincidence is when God chooses to remain anonymous. There's a new movie coming out. How many have seen the trailer for Jesus' Revolution? There's no coincidence that all this stuff is happening now. You have Asbury. You have it spreading to other colleges, as we're hearing. And now you have a movie about what happened in the 60s and 70s with the Jesus Revolution. If you were alive back then, you remember Time Magazine did a cover story, Jesus Revolution, which is where the name of the movie came from. You ever hear the name Greg Laurie? Greg Laurie is a pastor out in California. Greg Laurie was saved in this Jesus Revolution, and the movie is basically from his viewpoint. It's about Chuck Smith Calvary Chapel. Now, if you follow Greg Laurie at all, Greg Laurie is kind of like the newest Billy Graham. He, he, he holds rallies all over the place, big stadiums and stuff, and he gets you know, whole crowds of people to come in. And he got saved during this time. God's, gonna do, God's doing it right now. It's no coincidence that it's happening again at the same time this movie's coming out. And if this movie doesn't describe what's going on right now, what does? If you were alive back then, you know the tension and horrible situations that were happening in the 60s, Vietnam War, riots, horrible things. And at that time, it was a country divided, as we are seeing now. Back then, it was the hippie movement. Now it's who knows what. Look, look at where God is targeting. God's targeting 
the young people. We want to be a church ready for the young people. Doesn't mean God's not going to move here. I mean, God's moving in Asbury and all kinds of age groups are down there, but we want God to be ready to use us. We want this church packed with people who need Jesus. I think we're living in the late 60s all over again. A whole generation, what maybe we older ones don't understand, but we know they need help. They need Jesus. They need Jesus. And what's even better, Jesus loves them and wants us to reach them. And it's going to take a miracle to do it. And God already started that with Asbury. It's moving it on. Why can't he do it here? Isn't that what we've been praying for for years? Verse 20 goes on and says, but someday he, the bridegroom, will be taken away from them and then, then they will fast. Now this was kind of a hint of what was going to happen to Jesus, but at the time these guys probably didn't understand it. He's, he isn't saying that they're going to replace the feast that they're experiencing currently with fasting. He's not saying they're going to replace it. He's saying that occasionally fasting would be proper at a future time, but the joyful celebration should be the norm for believers. Do you experience the joy that Jesus has for you? We were able to come to this, you know, for those of you who knew, we have a Spanish church that meets here Saturday nights and Sunday afternoons. And Ann and I came last night to, they had a guest speaker come in, so we came at last minute. We were, we were just going to kind of sit in the back and do nothing, and Pastor Luis called us up. We had to sit in the front row. They had us introduce him. And Kevin, their son, had to interpret at the last minute for us. But during their worship, they're praying for the same thing we're praying for. And they're believing for the same thing we're believing for. And you can sense the presence of God in that service. Didn't understand anything they were singing, but you understood the spirit of God was there. So it's not just us, it's them. It's God moving. We want to be on target. We want to be ready for that. And I will tell you, their worship is lively, man. They're lively. They're a lively bunch. That's how we should be in Jesus all the time. Joyful, excited. And Jesus is saying, look, yeah, you'll fast occasionally, but the normative for believers should be joyful celebration. Verse 21 goes on and says, and who would patch an old garment with unshrunk cloth? For the new patch shrinks away and pulls from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger hole than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. The wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. My battery dead? I'm just cutting out. Now, up to now we've seen two important lessons. Jesus came to save sinners, not call the righteous. Second thing is he came to bring gladness, not sadness. Now, here's the third. This is a... Every time I read this verse, I'm trying to, you know, it seems obvious whenever you read it, and then you're like, what, what is he trying to say? It's simple if you think about it, especially when it's combined with the verse on fasting. The newness of what Jesus was saying and who Jesus is cannot conform to the ways of the old law. You can't mix the two. 
The law is the cloth and wineskins. They were useful in their time, but now they have been replaced. The religious leaders probably liked some of Jesus' teaching, and they would be okay with adding it to their collection of laws and, and rules. They would probably keep the best of Pharisaical Judaism and the best of what Jesus taught. And Jesus is saying, you can't, you can't do that. The old's gone, the new come, you can't combine the two. He had no plans on combining the old law, the old rules, the old regulations. He had no intention on combining that with what he taught. And how many cults are out there that want to do that? They want to combine, and I've heard this on, on people who are, you know, agnostic or whatever, can't we combine the best of every religion together? You can't. You can't do it. Every, in fact, if you study it, every faith is exclusive. You can't walk into a, a, a Jewish temple and say, let's add some Christianity to it. No. Every faith is exclusive, and Jesus is saying, look, you can't combine the old covenant with the new covenant. The old covenant is fading away, Hebrews tells us, the new covenant is what the standard is now. Christianity is exclusive as is almost every other faith. There is no combining. We cannot let any faith be equal or superior to Christianity. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else. To make it cleaner, clearer, there was no other name in all of heaven for people to call on to save them. There's not many ways to heaven. There's one way to heaven. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Pretty exclusive. Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies and all the foreshadowing of the Old Testament laws. And the law and its religious practices now are ending because Jesus came to fulfill those. What we're left with is not a list of do's and don'ts, but a relationship that is meant to be dynamic and joyful. When people see you, do they want to be around you? Are you a joyful kind of person? Or are you a sour grapes kind of person? I know Christians that you know, kind of don't want to hang around them because we're always trying to bring you down. God calls us to have joy and peace and God calls us to live that way so that others can see Hey, man, I don't know what it is, but you got it. I want it. The Pharisees could not let go of the past, and they would not allow Jesus to do something new in their lives. Warren Wisby says this, when you trust Jesus Christ, you become part of a new creation, and there are always experiences of grace and glory. How tragic when people hold on to dead religious tradition, when they can lay hold of living spiritual truth. Why cherish the shadows of the past when the reality of the present has come. So excited for what God's gonna do. And you know what? God usually does something that we're not ready for. Something that we've never experienced before. And we have to be ready for that. And the question is, are we ready for that? We've been praying for revival and I believe God wants to send it more than we wanna have it. But in every revival, there's always been a God-started change that believers weren't ready for. The Reformation, Martin Luther, man, did not have an easy life after that. 
got kicked out of the church, trying to kill him by his former fellow believers. The Jesus movement, as we saw in the movie preview, caused the existing church members to leave. They weren't ready for it. We don't want these folks in here. If you remember the Brownsville revival, the church in Brownsville was praying for revival. Once the revival started, and after it went on for so long, the people that actually prayed for it left the church because it was a little bit more than they were ready for. Are we ready for what God wants to do? It could be something radically different than what we're used to. We want to be prayed up, and we want to be ready, and we can't hold on to what we think God may want to do because that's how he did it in the past. It may be a whole new thing. And if God's in it, we want to be a part of it. And we don't want to stop it. The Bible says, don't quench the spirit. Whatever God wants to do, God wants to do. As right now, if you know, in, in Asbury, there's no leader. There's no one leading. It's just, basically, students are there worshiping. There's no one on the platform other than the band playing. There's no one leading it. And I, I did see an article where they, someone from the college said that they're getting requests from well-known preachers wanting to come down and help. Okay, you want to help God? What? My question is, so God's not doing it good enough. You want to come down and help God out. But the college, good for the college, says, you know, you can come and sit in the back like everybody else. But you're not going to hijack what God's doing. If God's in it, God's in it. Now, Pentecostal Church, Asbury, Methodist University. Yes. Wow! Pouring your spirit out upon a Methodist church, praise God. Yes. We want God to work in every church. but we need to be ready for what God is going to do. Now these folks haven't left for, what, two weeks now? Are we cool hanging out here in church for a couple of weeks? There's no showers here, so yeah, we're stuck. But if God's here, no one's going to want to leave. Matthew 2.23 says, One Sabbath day as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of wheat. But the Pharisees said to Jesus, they shouldn't be doing that. It's against the law to work by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Now, these accounts that, that Mark's putting together, these are not a chronological order. These are just all the same type of accounts that Mark's putting into a group to show these different examples all pertaining to the same thing. And what it, he's merely putting it in this position because it's a continuation of Jesus kind of poking the bear with the Pharisees, Right? violating their tradition. Now, the Sabbath for them was the most sacred of institutions. That was, their, that was their thing. But the Bible says that God gave the Sabbath to the Jewish people, not to the Gentiles. It was a Jewish holiday. So that's why we don't kind of celebrate the Sabbath on the Saturday. It was a particularly Jewish ordinance. We celebrate the Lord's Day. 
right? The day that Jesus rose from the grave, that's why we celebrate Sunday. It doesn't mean you can't meet on a Saturday or whatever. It's just not, we don't believe it's the Jewish Sabbath. But the Pharisees, that was, that was their thing. They gave the Sabbath much more prominence than Moses ever did when he gave the law. And the few limitations were when Moses said you couldn't work, but he couldn't really give any, he didn't give any specifics about that. Exodus 35, 2 says, each week worked for six days only. The seventh day is a day of total rest, a holy day that belongs to the Lord. Anyone who works on that day will die. So, not very specific. Later on in Leviticus, I, said, I believe it says, while you couldn't light a fire for cooking, you couldn't gather fuel for the fire, and you couldn't carry burdens or conduct business. So that was the extent of the law concerning the Sabbath. Anything more than that were added by the Pharisees. How often do we place our own personal preferences on above what God has already said in his word? Things that we don't, maybe we don't like. God never said that was bad, we just don't like him, so we're saying, you know, we, we shouldn't do that either. So placing this account right after the fasting question shows an increase in importance of Jewish tradition. He's, he's poking the bear. He's, you know, okay, they're, they did the, uh, the healing on the Sabbath. Now they're doing the grain on the Sabbath. They're working on the Sabbath. Fasting wasn't kind of important, but the Sabbath was probably at the top of their don't list. And basically the Sabbath day had become a crushing burden to the Jews. Another symbol of religious bondage that the Jews endured. I wrote down the question, what are some of our traditions that we seem to impose on other people? We want to carry on our traditions because we like our traditions. Notice the, the one in the trailer of the guy says, they don't work, they're not wearing shoes. And they're, they're dirtying up our shag carpet. Pastor friend of ours back home, he, uh, he would bring his mother to church. He wasn't a Christian, He'd bring his mom to church. He would sit in the car and wait for her to come out. And this is back in the same time frame. He's a hippie, you know, no shirt, beads, whole nine yards. And he's sitting in the car one day and it's getting really cold. So he decides to go into the church and he's wearing, just like you saw there, and he says, if one person says to me about my outfit, I'm leaving. And he walked in and everybody welcomed him warmly. And he got saved at that service. Because nobody said anything to him. Come on, Ed. We want to reach people. The things that we think in our own selves aren't right, we better be sure that God's word says the same thing. Think of it this way. We've been praying about that property thing going on, right? It's a real issue. You know, we, it's a big deal with our church. Now, again, no coincidence. God's moving. People have sensed the power and presence of God. So what happens? The enemy throws up this thing that might take half of our property, building, whatever. And if their plan goes through, we would actually lose access to the building. We had the building, just couldn't get to it. And I look around at the building, I'm looking at all the improvements we made. 
the money we've invested in the building, the new air conditioning units, the sound booths, the, the cameras, everything we've done to, to upgrade the, the place. And you don't want to leave because we've done all this stuff. We put a lot of time and money into this building to lose it. And it becomes comfortable, like an old shoe. But maybe God needs to find us a bigger church. And we're not going to be looking for a church if we're going to stay here. So God says, well, they're stubborn. They're not going to look, so I'm going to kick them out. We don't know what's going to happen. Am I so attached to the building that we don't want to move out of the building? And we would, would we even think about moving if we weren't forced to think about it? I have no idea what God has in mind. But I know this. We've been praying for revival and praying for a lot of people to get saved. And maybe we're going to need a bigger church. That's why everyone here has to pray about that situation. Because it's not a, not a done deal yet. They haven't built it yet. We're meeting with them in the end of this month to see where they are. Um, we've actually talked and here's another thing you can be praying about. We don't want to get ahead of what God's doing, but we don't want to get behind what God wants us to do. We want to have wisdom. Every time men try to help God out, it didn't work out too well. So we don't want to help God out with this situation, but we don't want to sit back and God said, well, dude, you could have done this, you could have done that. There was a time when Moses was praying and God says, get up, man. Time for praying over. Start doing. So we want to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, while we interact with the township. So pray for us as the board. We have wisdom for that. I was praying the other day, and the book of Esther came to my mind. You know the story. Haman was going to kill all the Jews, right? Wasn't anything that could be, could be done. Mordecai tells Esther about this, and she said this to Esther. She says this to him. Esther 4.15 says, And Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then though it is against the law, I will go in and see the king. Well, the law looks to take our property. God's bigger than the law. So whatever that means... Whatever that means for this church, the gates of hell and a traffic circle are not going to prevail against God's church. God went before Esther, gave her favor with the king, and that plot was ended. God's not going to allow what he's doing to be stopped by a circle. Either we go before the law and do it that way, or God opens the door for a new place. You know, God can stop that right now. In the natural, it seems almost impossible because of what's already gone on before. But nothing's too hard for God. Calvary Chapel during the Jesus movement had the same problem. They saw the small church and got to get a bigger church. 
And they were able to, in the movie you'll, you'll see that they had all these hippies, they had no place to live. And so a local motel was going to shut down or something or get torn down and they let the guy stay in the hotel. God provided a different church for them as they meet down the road. God provided all these different properties for them. I saw an interview with uh, Chuck Smith. Now Chuck Smith gone to be with the Lord. But I saw an interview that he did a while ago and he basically said that all these places, God ordained them to have these buildings to use. And he saw the tent, and they had to put a big tent up for that. Now, we're not in Southern California, and we have weather issues here. But if God wants us to put up a tent, we'll put up a tent. God will do the same for us. Mark 2.25 says, Jesus replied, Haven't you ever read in the scriptures what King David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went to the house of God during the days when Abiathar was high priest. He ate the special bread reserved for the priest alone and then gave some to his companions. That was breaking the law too. Now, do you think that allowing the guys to eat the grain was an oversight on Jesus' part? I'm thinking it was a direct, another direct confrontation poking the bear with the Pharisees. He's beginning to now take apart their traditions. Yeah, it was against the law to do what David did. But notice that David was not condemned for it. Why? Jesus wasn't saying that the law wasn't broken. He is saying that under certain circumstances, these actions are warranted. David did break the law, but he wasn't condemned for that reason. Because why? It was permissible for hungry people to take food and eat it. As long as it wasn't technically harvesting or filling containers. Deuteronomy 23 says, Yeah, you may pluck a few heads of your neighbor's grain by hand, but you may not harvest it with a sickle. The law was given to help people, to give people rest. It was to benefit them. The Sabbath was a day that God says, I want to benefit you. So take it off. Mark 2.27 says, Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made to benefit people, and not people to benefit the Sabbath. The Jews made it a law that benefited the day itself. Because that was, the day was more important than the people it was supposed to protect. And then, Jesus drops this bomb on them. Verse 28 says, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So I'm sure the guys are getting incensed when they hear that because they know what it means. Now that goes into chapter three. Now if you know that the Bible didn't have chapters and verses when it was written, it was all one story. Man has kind of put chapters and verses in so we can find things easier. So chapter three is basically a continuation of what was happening in the end of chapter two. And verse one says, another time he went into the synagogue with a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal them on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Now this is the last poking the bear scenario that Mark gives us in this section. And these accounts of challenging the Pharisees happen at different times, but Mark puts them all in the same place so the Roman Christians would understand what was going on. They could see a pattern in Jesus. Now, could Jesus have waited another day to heal this guy? Sure. 
Could he have taken him outside and said, let's go outside so no one sees and heal there? But he didn't. He was in your face. He wanted to challenge the Pharisees to have traditions against the Sabbath again. He's still, he's still hammering this Sabbath thing home for them. And what's he say to the guy? Stand up in front of everybody, including the Pharisees. In your face. Now Luke tells us that when Mark says some of them, uses the phrase some of them in verse 2, Luke's gospel tells us that it was the Pharisees that were there, not just run-of-the-mill people. The some of them that Mark talks about were actually Pharisees. And Jesus knew his audience and healed this guy right in front of them. And he, was doing, he, knew, that, he knew by doing that, he was going to make them upset again. Sometimes you're going to have to make statements that we know will upset hearers. But we need to make them anyways. You sometimes can't avoid calling out sin. I heard a story of a pastor who was preaching on sexual, homosexual, and all that kind of stuff. And some of the people in the church says, can't you lay off that stuff for a while? Can't you just like not talk about that? And the guy said, no, I can't. I can't not talk about God's word. And so people left the church. You can't not talk about what God talks about. You don't have to focus on it all the time, but you can't ignore it either. So Mark goes on and says, Jesus asked him, what is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to, or to do evil, to save life or kill it? But they remained silent. He wasn't waiting for them to respond. He wasn't waiting for them to accuse him. He took the fight to them. He addressed their problem right away. Evil operates every day, even the Sabbath, Right? This is Sunday, this is God's day, but I bet you the evil, evil is going on in the world right now. Death is always at work. People die every day. We should be the ones seeking to save life all the time, whether it's on Sunday or not. Jesus is basically saying, why can't I just help this guy on the Sabbath? The Sabbath was made to benefit people. Why can't I heal him? And of course, they couldn't give an answer to that. Verse 5 says, he looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and the hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began a plot with the Herodians to see how they might kill Jesus. You want to kill somebody because he heals somebody. That's how blind the enemy makes you. What's the Bible say? Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. You look at people and they, it, they look at something that's so sinful and they, want, and they think it's great. And you wonder, how can they think it's great? Well, the Bible says he's blinded them. I saw a meme the other day. If you watch, I don't watch any of the award shows, but you saw probably all over the news this one satanic dance at an award show. The guy was dressed up like the devil and everybody's wearing red. And the meme said, you know, whoever this guy was, he had five minutes of fame. Next picture. But God, phew, picture of revival. Devil's got his five minutes. God's doing it right now for weeks. Call evil good and good evil. Jesus never got mad at garden variety sinners. 
His anger was always towards those who were self-righteous. The phrasing of, the, of this suggests righteous indignation. How a good man would feel when he's in the presence of evil. These guys would rather protect their tradition than help somebody out. So to be in their face again, he heals this guy right in front of them, knowing what they were thinking. They weren't verbalizing anything. The Bible says he knew what they were thinking. Now, I'm not sure if the guy knew all that was going on, but he knew he wanted to be healed more than he was afraid of the Pharisees. He knew if he was going to get healed, he's going to get called out for being healed on the Sabbath. But he didn't care. Which begs the question, do we want God to move more than we're afraid of what might happen? If you're afraid of really committing your life to Christ because of your family or your friends or what they might say, then you're never going to get the blessings that God has for you. This guy could have stayed in his seat all day long and said, you know what, I'm afraid of what they're going to do if I do this, so I'm not going to go. He said, no, I don't care what they think. I want healed. And God heals him. He simply trusted what Jesus said and he was healed. If we simply trust God, then we will see God move as well, regardless of what we think others were going to say. But the Pharisees were so mad at Jesus, breaking their tradition, but more importantly, challenging their power base. That's why they were mad. They were looked at as the be-all to end-all of religious leaders, and all of a sudden, somebody comes who has much more power than they do and authority than they do. And now they're losing their position of power. That's why they tried to kill him. They wanted it so bad they even teamed up with their enemy, the Herodians. These were Jews who followed Herod. They liked him. They supported Herod. Now, most Jews hated Herod. And therefore, it was an unlikely, unlikely alliance for the Pharisees with a group of people who the Jews didn't really like. These are Jews who followed Herod. The rest of the Jews didn't like him because they were in bed with Herod. And all of a sudden, the Pharisees are now teaming up with their enemy. What's the phrase? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Jesus was now a common enemy to both of them. The Herodians thought that Jesus was going to have a revolution and throw, over, throw off Herod. And the Pharisees were afraid of losing their power base, so they two got together to stop the problem. But now knowing, knowing the situation was in front of him, Jesus left. His time for serious confrontation had not yet arrived. Verse 7 in chapter 3 says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. Now Matthew gives us a little bit more detail. Matthew 12, 14 says, But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from the place. Jesus knew they were plotting to kill him. But he also knew it wasn't his time. And so he left. And people were chasing him, not for salvation, but for miracles. That's why I'm so excited about the Asbury thing. There may be miracles happening, probably are. But you're hearing about salvations. You're hearing about people getting saved, about people repenting. That's how you know it's God. So now for Jesus, ministry is going to become harder. I'll close with this. 
as we dig into God and pray for revival and for God to be active in our services and lives, we can expect our ministry to become harder. The more we oppose the darkness, the more difficult it's going to be. But Jesus pressed on knowing exactly what he was going to face. And the question is, are we? When push comes to shove, are we really in it for the long haul? Or are we going to run away when things get tough? Now, I promised the band I would call them up to sing this song again. So, if you want to come up, we're going to sing that song again. Because this is our prayer. We want to be in the room when God moves. That could be here. We want it to be here. But it could be your house. It could be somewhere where you're at and you're praying that God moves upon you. And we don't want to rush things. We don't want to say, okay, Lord, it's 12 o'clock. Crockpot's on. I'm out of here. You want to be in the room when God moves, and we're not leaving until God does. So if you feel released to go while they're singing this song, feel free to go. But if you want to press in, just let this song be your prayer, and then we'll close after that with song, with prayer. There are moments nothing can replace. Heaven and earth meet face to face. A broken heart begins to change. Word takes on flesh and soul finds faith. Where the unfulfilled are satisfied and the unknown scars are reconciled it's an open door to a brand new life up close in the presence of our savior i just want to be in the room want to be in the room when you move and I'm not leaving, not leaving till you do. I just want to be in the room, want to be in the room when you move. And I'm not leaving, not leaving till you do. I want to see the blind receive their sight. Hear the praise of the voices start to rise. Every child of God baptized with fire. Right here in the presence of the healer. I just want to be in the room, want to be in the room when you move. And I'm not leaving, not leaving till you do. I don't want to miss it. I just want to be in the room, want to be in the room when you move. And I'm not leaving, not leaving till you do. Fill this place, Lord. Fill this room. Fill our hearts.
tear off the roof, lower me down, whatever it takes to get me to you. Tear off the roof, lower me down, whatever it takes to get me to you. Tear off the roof, lower me down, whatever it takes to get me to you. Roll every stone, push through the crowd. God, I want to see you break through. Tear off the roof, lower me down, whatever it takes to get me to you. Roll every stone, push through the crowd. God, I want to see you break through. Yes. Oh, I want to see you break through. I just want to be in the room, want to be in the room when you move. And I'm not leaving, not leaving till you do. I don't want to miss it. I just want to be in the room, want to be in the room when you move. And I'm not leaving, not leaving till you do. Tear off the roof. Tear off the roof. Lower me down, whatever it takes to get me to you. Roll every stone, push through the crowd. God, I want to see you break through. Tear off the roof, lower me down, whatever it takes to get me to you. Roll every stone, push through the crowd. God, I want to see you break through. We want to see you break through into our lives, into this church, into this community, Father. We want the Holy Spirit to break through. We want the power of God to be in the salvations of many, many people. We believe that you want more to be saved than we want them to be saved. That we would continue to press in and serve you and press in and press in and push through the crowd. Roll away the things that come in front of us, Father. Don't let the world distract us from what you want to do in us. Help us to keep our devotional life fresh and alive and allow us to walk around enjoying the blessings that you've given us. We're supposed to enjoy being a Christian. You give us that joy. Our lives may not be the perfect life. It doesn't matter. We can still have joy. To those around Father, I pray that, Lord, you would fill them with your spirit. Allow them to realize that you're drawing them right now. And, Lord, you're beginning something here. And we are not going to stop until we see you break through. So every day we're pressing in. Every service we're pressing in. And we believe that once we touch the hem of your garment, pour out your spirit upon us. So, Father, I pray you'd go before us this week. Make every crooked to live our lives, to honor you, and live expecting something to happen. We're your servants, Father. We're just simply your servants. Use us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, 
Amen. Amen. God bless you. Give the Lord a praise offering before you go. Hallelujah.